0: The opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of the board of directors, staff, or volunteers of CKMS FM Radio Waterloo, or its affiliate sponsors or advertisers. We are Radio Waterloo, CKMS 102.7 FM. We broadcast out of (laughs) Kitchener and Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. And so that is pretty amazing. Today we are speaking with Bill Simpson with Wild Horse Fire Brigade. How are you doing?
1: Doing well. I'm doing well.
0: So the last time that you and I connected was definitely four years ago, something like that. And there had been wildfires and a lot of trauma. And at the time, your, your wife was ill and she has passed away and I'm, I'm my condolences I can't imagine going through something like that and I'm really sorry we shared your uh, a conversation back in those days your Wild Horse Fire Brigade would you introduce yourself to the listeners that we have?
1: Certainly so <clears throat> I'm William Simpson I am the executive director of Wild Horse Fire Brigade we're an all-volunteer 501c3 nonprofit <clears throat> down in uh, the states here of course we're um you know we're what we're doing um can benefit wild horses across the world uh we're developing a nature-based solution for catastrophic fire and um, we're starting, uh, we just began a university program with Cal State University Sacramento to begin teaching students about wild horse ecology and ethology in here in the wilderness.
0: Right. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I went onto your Instagram page, and there are some very lucky students that are involved. Are you aware of any other programs like that that exist?
1: No, frankly, I'm not aware of any um, in the United States or anywhere else for that matter that are teaching wild horse ecology in the wilderness. And I think the reason for that being is is um, the herds in uh, the wild horse herds here in America are uh, managed by the BLM. And, of course, they've been abused quite often by helicopter roundups and all kinds of other things. So they're very... Um, reticent to have uh, any kind of uh, interaction with humans. You know, normally when they see you come and they run, very difficult to train or, or observe uh, students in such a condition. And, and then it's of course it involves just a, a few hours of a field trip because you gotta drive out there, find the horses, maybe you get to see them, maybe you get to learn something. Uh, where we are, we actually live among the wild horses Uh, Here in the wilderness, and uh, back in um, uh, early 2022, the uh, county of Siskiyou, California gave us ownership of this heritage herd um, out of respect for all the work that we've done and um, studying them and taking care of them for about seven years. And um, uh, after quite a few meetings between the county supervisor, I'm sorry, the uh, county ag commissioner. And Michelle and I, um, they they basically awarded us ownership of the herd. So because oh. we own the herd, and they're here in the wilderness, um, we're able to conduct studies that um, allow unique opportunities. And because we use what we call the Goodall method, um, basically, uh, which is what Jane Goodall used to build relationships with the chip, the apes she studied in Gobi, Africa by building those relationships and that bounding of trust, uh, Jane Goodall was able to learn quite a bit about the apes uh, through that relationships. And so we have the same relationship uh, with the horses here. And because they trust us, the students get to get closer. And so the both the quality and the quantity of data that you get from this kind of research, and we, again, we call it the Goodall method out of in honor of Jane Goodall, who pioneered this study method, um, the students benefit greatly. And it, and I believe it is the only um, program of its kind in the world right now.
0: Mm-hmm. So what kind of things do you study out there?
1: Well, um, first of all, um, we're uh, cataloging one of the, um, the chair of the environmental department at Cal State University, Sacramento, Dr. Wayne Linklater, who's on our board, um, gave these students an assignment um we consulted, he's on our board, so we consulted about what our needs are, because um, we can't do everything. It's just, you know, Michelle and I up here in the wilderness trying to do everything by ourselves. It's not easy. And um, so the students came up with a primary mission of cataloging the herd, which is basically creating a, a computer database and a card catalog of each horse um, that includes a photograph, descriptions, any kind of um ancestry that we can build, the ethology of that horse, um, and so forth. And birth, you know, the birth when it was born and so forth, all those kinds of data. And then, so that was the first um, thing they started working on. And they did that for over 100 horses.
0: Um,
1: And that's going to lead to a lot of additional opportunities because once we have 150 heritage horses and then we have 65 mustangs, that our extended team of volunteers rescued from slaughter auctions and then we put them through quarantine and vet- veterinarian certifications and, and transported them out here and integrated them into the herd of wild horses so it would give them an opportunity to um seamlessly integrate not only into the wilderness but into family bands so that they're just not out here by themselves so the, the locals our heritage herd that have been here for you know a long long time in fact our ancestors were seen by sir francis drake in 1580 these horses that were already here basically welcomed in the 65 mustangs that you know could have been in a meat grinder in mexico so um they got they're living their lives naturally wild and free again and so the students are beat are learning quite a bit they're 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 starting with cataloging the herd which will allow genetic marking we're going to you know take hair follicles and send them off to switzerland and we're going to get genetics on each one of the horses that'll go into each horse's file um, we're going to um, continue studying the behavioral ecology the impact of these uh, mega herbivores on the landscape you know they reseeding of the the native flora the benefits to coval fauna uh, students will be studying the ethology of these horses, family band dynamics, you know how how these families work, you know, and and why do they work the way they do, and then and then importantly, all the major benefits that they provide to the ecosystem, which are highly overlooked. Uh, wild horses are understudied because the BLM really doesn't want to know anything about wild horses other than. How can they round them up even quicker or sterilize them even quicker? So, and these aren't things that are good for native horses because they're wildlife. You know, they have to be, we need sustainable, natural conservation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's what these students are also going to learn. You know, what are these horses really about? And, and then how can we manage them better, which is allowing nature to manage them?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a dream program for somebody who loves horses or wild horses and a great opportunity. So I was on some of the links that you have emailed me uh, over while I've known you. And there's one where it says, uh, Nevada lawsuit failed to stop deadly lawsuits. And that's via Wild Horse Ranch Productions. So what is that about?
1: Um, Well most of america's wild horses as you probably realize are in nevada and that's where the vast majority of them live and uh so there's quite a bit of mining and um extraction industries going on you know the lithium that goes into batteries they've discovered there's vast lithium deposits in nevada and there's other minerals and then you have the livestock industry as well so the horses are in the way of these big commercial enterprises and people don't don't quite understand what, what i would call the chain of command you know who's calling the shots about what's going on there and people you know talk about the blm quite a bit as you know but the reality is is the blm are just the soldiers on the ground they're not the generals they're not the you know when you look at the chain of command Who's really calling the shots for all of that? Well, the reality is, is corporate America that has trillions of dollars in annual revenue and and provides all kinds of funding for political campaigns on both sides of the aisle. Doesn't matter. Um, they're the ones that are telling politicians what they want, and you, and of course your politician getting funded for campaign, uh, you know, programs and things. They don't ever bite the hand that feeds them not unless you don't care if you're in an office again so they then you know make laws they influence the uh the various agencies the department of interior the usda and so that's the blm and u.s forestry um the politicians being influenced by corporations then in turn influence agencies who then send the troops out there the blm to do these roundups and and the u.s forest so the reality is, is corporations that want to control certain public lands with these vast resources, you know, oil, gas, copper, lithium, cobalt, uh, and of course, livestock and, and really livestock production is the pipsqueak in the room compared to the extraction industry people.
0: Oh, wow. And, I mean, that's
1: the really, really, that's the really big money. So, and the horses are in the way of these big corporations. The you know, the corporations don't want native species wild horses out there where if they get it, if they get endangered species listed, then they got a real big problem because then they're trying to engage the uh their their commercial enterprises on public land that's occupied by a, a listed endangered species, that would be a big problem. So there's a real rush to get rid of all the horses before people wake up and go hold it. They've been here two million years. Equus the modern horse we all see, been here two million years. They are native, and because of their their numbers are so low, you know, under a hundred thousand out there running wild and free. There's probably really maybe fifty thousand wild and free. So technically if they got endangered, listed as an endangered species, which they should because of their low numbers, um, that would create a big problem for these corporations, and they know it. So, the you know, the, they're trying to get rid of them quick. It's, a, it's an extermination campaign across the board, and it's, it's very well designed. They have scientists. They know what they're doing. And the aggregate uh, effect of reducing populations to very small numbers, and they've got them segregated. So when you look at herd management areas, they've broken them up into areas where there might be 100 or less horses, according to their appropriate management level, which has nothing to do with science. It's all arbitrary. Um, they break them down into herds that are like 100 animals, so they inbreed. And then on top of that, they're, they're injecting them with chemical sterilization compounds you know pzp and gonacon now largely gonacon so not only have they reduced the population so you have inbreeding but now they're also sterilizing which actually in effect further reduces the breeding population and this is a real big problem because when you look at the international union for nature conservancy they say for equids horses and and any other equids the minimum population to have sustainable evolutionary survival is, is a thousand horses, a thousand, not a hundred, not 200, not 500, but 1000 breeding horses, not sterilized, not, not castrated normal, you know, naturally living horses, a thousand in a herd. That's the minimum. So that's where we are right now. There, it's an extermination program, and it's scientifically designed. So what Wild Horse Fire Brigade is trying to do with all of our strategies, rewilding, teaching university students so they go out and become educated influencers, um, is to create a situation where horses that are in conflict on some of these commercially enterprises uh, operations you know we've got these big landscapes with commercial enterprises pressing in on the horses instead of trying to force the basically the the horses to stay on these economic battlefields what we want to do is move them into the remote wilderness and where there are no commercial enterprises that would interfere with horses there might be timber management but they don't care about horses in fact the horses are beneficial because they reduce fire so move them from where they're in conflict, to where they're beneficial, not sterilize them, so they're no longer breeding, so that you say, okay, the population is no longer growing, and they just walk around and end up dead with no babies, you know, it just doesn't work that way.
0: No, no, that's really sad, and there is a law that is supposed to protect the horses and the in the the free roaming uh, burros and wild horses, but somehow it can be worked around with a helicopter versus an airplane, or because they're mismanaging. Clearly, it's not what the mandate was originally.
1: No, you're right. In '71, President Nixon signed the Free Roaming Wild Horse and Burro Protection Act. Um, But that was over 50 years ago and what's happened is consumerism everybody wants a new you know whatever you know plastic device uh uh uh, uh, you know a new iphone a new computer you know all of the things that go into building these devices these consumer devices come from a lot of it comes from the land right here and so Consumerism over the last fifty years has created a tremendous amount of pressure on the public lands across the world. Frankly, but you know we're talking about what's happening right here in the United States mm-hmm. and in Canada to some extent. Um, consumerism is is really where it's creating these pressure. These corporations, with making all this money, they're just looking at what the consumers are asking for, and their shareholders say, "Hey, we need to make more money." What do the consumers want? Oh, they want new. They want better iPhones. They want a bigger. They want an iPhone 22. They want a new super fast computer. They want this. They want a battery operated car now, or a battery operated scooter. And and then the corporations say, "Fine, okay, consumers want it. Let's go figure out where to get the resources and build it and sell it." And and that's really what's driving these roundups. And I mean, re- when you really bring it down and distill it down to really what it is. It's consumers. It's not the BLM. The BLM are just the the hired henchmen, right? So they're out there just doing what their bosses said, and the bosses above them, the politicians, and the bosses above the politicians are the corporations. So um, we can't be as as advocates. Yeah, we all love horses. We all want to see them protected, but we can't be trillion dollar corporations that are aligned. and their their zeal to, you know, to take advantage of these public lands, we can't beat them. What we have to do is figure out a way to collaborate with corporations in a way to move these horses so they're no longer considered in conflict. And then we could probably get more cooperation from corporations and then, in turn, cooperation from the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service for what we're doing, you know, which is to basically create natural, sustainable evolutionary level conservation not you know people talk about conservation and they go well we can sterilize the horse temporarily or we can bring him back later or see that's more invasive humanism you know we, we have this attitude that we know better than nature mm-hmm. and that's 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 a foolish approach oh
0: yeah
1: because we've only been We've only been on the planet 200,000 years, you know. Horses have been here 2 million years and doing just fine without us.
0: Right. I know. It's sad to watch. (laughs) I mean, in a way, I feel like it's sad that it's at the point where we have to accommodate consumerism, that we can't just say, you know what, these horses have the lo- have have the right to be on the land. They help the environment by being there. They're a heritage animal. But instead, we have to say, you know what? People are not going to stop buying what they buy. So, we're just going to have to work with them and like move the horses. Like it's a very practical solving the situation.
1: Yeah, I agree. You know, when you really just look at it, it's it's real common sense. Um these areas where all this stuff's happening in Nevada and new mexico and colorado and uh, you know different places um when you look at those landscapes they've been used by livestock producers for 200 years and so what what does that mean what, what is the result of that 200 years of grazing history with livestock well one thing is all the apex predators have been killed they i mean the the, the ranchers they can't make money if there's wolves, lions, and bears eating their calves and their, and their lambs and their adult breeding cattle they, and sheep. They can't make money. So for 200 years, they've been killing all of those apex predators. Now, when you have horses in the same areas, what happens? Well, now the horses are, don't have their natural predators, which, by the way, they need for evolutionary natural selection and the vigor of the species, horses absolutely need to be in the presence on a wilderness landscape with their apex predators because that's a special relationship that the creator set up. If you believe in creation or God or or the great spirit with you know, whatever you believe in, or just nature's perfection, that that relationship, the prey predator relationship, has a very important genetic function because predators unlike humans predators are able to sense because they've been peer-to-peer with their prey for millions of years with the horses they can sense horses that are defective in some way diseased injured too old and these are all animals that should not be breeding any of those conditions are a non-starter because when those animals if they do breed you end up with genetic erosion because you're allowing the lesser quality genetics to be expressed into the herd Mm -hmm. so nature is so perfect at what she does she has these predators out there and they remove the weak genes so the strongest the fittest the smartest the fastest they stay alive and that's why we had horses two million years here because of that prey predator relationship well going back to these areas where there's cows in these herd management areas now, and horses, and mining, and extraction industries. And so what's happening is the the horses don't have predators, so they overpopulate too, just like the cows and the sheep, by design. That's not good. That's a real bad management model right off for all kinds of reasons, ecologically, genetically, um, economically. It's just bad to keep those horses there. And anybody who professes to use... Fertility control, which is chemical sterilization, that's just couching it using a nice term, or contraception. See, they're using terms that relate to human birth control. It's not the same. We don't sterilize humans with harsh chemicals. Okay, we just don't do that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so they use terms that have these nice sounding, oh, contraception, I know what that is, you know. A lot of women do. Okay, but that's not what this is. This is a, this is a EPA-registered pesticide they're using off-label to sterilize American wild horses, and probably in Canada as well. So um, the smart move is to just say, okay, fine, they're in a bad spot for lots of reasons. Let's just move them, put them where they can live naturally and sustainably in, herd so- in the correct herd sizes, too, not herds that are 50 and 100. But Or 200, when you really need a minimum of 1,000, according to the, U, the International Union of Conservation for Nature. So what do we do? We relocate them into these vast wilderness areas in the Pacific Northwest, where these big forests are. There's no livestock production. There's no, there's no mineral extraction. There's none of that. And there's lots of water. There's tons of grass and brush, because our deer population's collapsed. From mismanaging the deer, I mean, we're down two million deer in California, five hundred thousand deer in Oregon, gone. That means three and a half million tons of annual grass and brush sitting there, waiting for the first spark every year.
0: Wow.
1: Um, dryer, you know. So, you know, we put them out there. We could have we could have naturally occurring herds of a thousand horses in various areas, and then the problem is solved. And then everybody wins. It doesn't have to be win or loser either. You know, it's uh, I don't know what it is with advocates, but they they want to beat down the BLM. But and, and yeah, it's easy to, to not like these people because we see what they're doing to the horses. But they're being told to do that by the powers that control the payrolls of all these people, their pensions. And a lot of people, even though they know they're doing something that ain't quite right they're not going to throw their family in the poorhouse by losing their job. So, you know, people want to eat. They got kids, they got cars, they got payments. So everybody's kind of caught between the rock, hard rock and a hard spot because and 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 I blame some of the advocacy for this. I blame a lot of the wild horse advocacy for what's happening because they're continuing to make money by forcing a bad situation because they make money on chemical sterilization. Some of the leading nonprofits in America, like American Wild Horse Campaign, they're all about, oh, we can make them stay there if we just sterilize them. But think about that for a minute. You sterilize these horses with Gonicon and PZP, what happens? They they walk around, they never have babies. I mean, you look at the Salt River Herd, you see videos and pictures. You never see babies and yearlings. You look at our herd up here in the wilderness. Every family band has brand new babies and yearlings walking around with the adults. Every band. That's natural. That's what you expect to see. Not hundreds of horses and maybe one baby or, or one yearling. That's See, what happens with that is if you don't have enough babies, see, Mother Nature is supremely wise. And... By design, the herds have to have a lot of babies because they have to be tested by environmental pressures. See, natural selection, a lot of people don't even understand natural selection. It's everything in the environment is part of natural selection, not just predators, everything. Diseases, bad weather, snow, rain, mud, all kinds of things. Whatever's happening on the landscape and in the climate, our pressures on those horses that select out animals that can't survive it. And so every time there's a selection, whether it's a disease that comes through and, and a third of the horses die, they didn't have the genetics to withstand that disease, but the ones that survive, they have special genetic makeup that allow them to have the immunity to that disease. So they go forward. So the herd is stronger and stronger and see environmental pressures is everything including wolves bears coyotes lions all of that and disease bacteria virus weather conditions all of it is part of natural selection and you have to have enough babies because some are going to die and if you don't have enough babies to so nature can sort out the strongest from the weak then then your herd fails you go you get your erosion and it seems cruel but you know when i first got up here 10 years ago and made friends with the horses and you lose a horse to a lion or a bear or a wolf that was your friend and you find them dead you know it breaks your heart it breaks your heart but you have to step back from that and you have to say okay is this about me or is this really about keeping wild horses evolutionarily you know have this evolutionary level conservation so they continue when I'm long gone will there be a million horses in America
0: right
1: that's the question you know will we have wild horses for generations to come see if we make it about us and what we want our feelings just us that's a mistake and it took me a while to learn that lesson it was hard to learn but uh, you know as I was up here uh, greater wisdom I, I learned a greater wisdom about nature's how nature does things and sometimes it seems cruel at first glance but the reality is 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 what's crueler having the whole species go extinct or allowing a beautiful herd of horses to proliferate for generation after generation and again they've been here two million years nature's plan works so, I think that is the most beautiful vision that sustainability like that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us about the symbiotic relationship between wild horses and the land?
1: Right. So, um, so people use the term keystone herbivore. What what is a keystone? When you look at a rock arch, the keystone is the top wedge in between the arch that keeps it up. It keeps it supports the whole arch. That's a keystone. Okay, so when you say keystone herbivore, what do we mean? Well, we're talking about a large body herbivore, uh, or a, you know, uh, the horse, the North American wild horse. And what makes it a keystone herbivore? Why is it important to hold it all together like a keystone in a rock arch? Well, what what makes them the most important herbivore on the landscape is they are the only Big herbivore we have that recedes. They're a very effective at receding. Um, all of the ruminants. Okay, so what is a ruminant? A ruminant is a multi-stomach digester that chews a cud. So that's cows, sheep, goats, deer, elk, all the cervidate. They all chew a cud. They all have multiple stomachs, and that means they digest really well. So, and and they actually um, actually ruminate okay you've heard that term ruminating before Mm -hmm. well that comes from ruminants because they'll graze and then they can lay down and then they sit there and digest they'll chew their cud and they they rotate food from from one of their stomachs through, through their chambers and and they and they chew it over again and over again until it gets masticated to the point where the digestion is really good and so now, horses don't do that. They're post-gastric digesters. They have one stomach. They're like us in many ways. And um, so when they eat the, the plants and the grasses and things, they don't digest the seeds the same way. In fact, there's been a lot of studies that show most of the seeds they eat come out in their dung and grow, which doesn't happen with ruminants. So why is this important? Well, because horses have been here two million years, the re- relationship that they have with plants and grasses is what you would call a co-evolved symbiotic relationship, okay, where a, a true mutualism like that, where both parties benefit, it's not parasitic. People, you know, what, what ruminants do to grasses is more parasitic. In other words, they get the grass, they get something, but they don't give anything back.
0: Mm-hmm. There's,
1: no, there's no real benefit. Whereas a horse, what it does is it, yeah, it gets nutrition. It, it eats the grass, but then it completes the grass's life cycle. So it's a true it's a true symbiotic relationship. It's not one way. It's not parasitic. So um, when the horses re- complete these life cycles of these plants, they're eating all these different bushes and plants, and, and I mean that's the other thing too. Wild horses eat a completely different diet. That a domestic horse will eat um they uh what they're doing is they're getting what they need to live but then they're receding all of these things and that reseeding that they do benefits all the other fauna so they're out there providing through their droppings and all the receding they do food for the other animals the deer the elk the rabbits all the other herbivores benefit from horses also the insects and the pollinators that need the flowers of all these plants and grasses they benefit the bees and so in a in a wilderness area where you have horses you are doing the very best thing you can do for that forest because the forest needs a good cover crop on the ground to hold the snow and to allow the water to go into the aquifer into the water table there to feed the, to give the trees the water they need, but also so they fertilize the trees, and then they also provide the pollinators that the trees need too. Trees need pollinators, and if these pollinators need all kinds of things, they need all kinds of flowers and, and pollen to survive, and all these different insects that pollinate, and right down to the bees and the butterflies. So. The horses do something that no other animal does. Rabbits don't do it. Deer don't do it. Elk don't do it. Cows don't do it. Sheep don't do it. Goats don't do it. Horses are the only ones that do this. So this is what makes them the Keystone herbivore because they actually hold the whole ecosystem together because it's all connected. If you let ruminants go in and graze a wilderness area, Okay, because nature is perfect in how she also recedes. The plants throw seeds off, the, the grasses throw seed, but the seeds don't all germinate all at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Some
1: seeds can lay on the ground like five years, and so that's called the seed bank. So a lot of ranchers don't understand this simple stuff, but when you put ruminants on a, on a landscape, and they can graze it down, and the next year it all grows back, and they go, look, no problem, didn't hurt it. Well, the reason it came back is because the seed bank is there. And -hmm. there's going to be seeds that are laying on the ground that may germinate even five, six years later. So, yeah, there will be plants coming back from the seed bank, but the ruminants aren't reseeding, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So so if you put ruminants into an area too long, they can actually just decimate the landscape. And, in fact, we have a good history story for everybody in the world – happened right here in the midwest the united states in 19 in the 20s and 30s there was so many ruminant livestock grazing cattle and sheep it created the dust bowls and we heard about the dust bowls during the the great depression in the united states there was literal dust bowls. the ground was grazed to the dirt and never receded because they were all invasive ruminants all these cows sheep goats all came from africa they're not native here there's not one cow fossil anywhere in north america not one so um horse there's horse fossils everywhere hmm. um so they grazed it to the dirt you know starting in the late 1800s and by the time you got to the early 1900s 19 i think right around 1934 something like that um it got so bad, the dust from the, no, there's no plant life holding the soil together, just dust going everywhere. The dust was hitting Washington, D.C. even. Oh, wow. So the legislators in Washington, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it was more than an oh well. These people in uh, in Washington, D.C., these politicians, they were getting covered in dust from the Midwest. Holy. Totally. And yeah. so that, they passed, in 1934, they passed what is called the Taylor Grazing Act. And you can look that up. If you Google University of Nebraska Taylor Grazing Act, you can read the whole history about this. So they paid, they passed, the legislature passed, the or the Congress passed the Taylor Grazing Act, which said you have to limit these ruminant herbivores. You have to, the cattle sheep goes, we have, we have to limit those because they're ruining the landscape. And that's what the, ta- the Taylor Grazing Act wasn't about making more grazing for the livestock industry. If you go down the street and you ask ranchers, what was the Taylor Grazing Act? A lot of them say, oh, yeah, that was for that we could have more grazing for ranchers. No, it was to reduce grazing by ranchers.
0: I was just saying we are in southwestern Ontario in Canada, uh, southwest of Toronto uh, with about an hour. And where are your geographical location, actually, to be exact?
1: Uh, we are up on the mountains on the Oregon-California border, and um, it's very, it's oh, c- closer, uh, we're, we're, we're not very close to Nevada, we're closer to the Pacific Ocean here, so we're about, as the crow flies, oh, so maybe 120 miles to the ocean from here.
0: Oh wow, that's incredible. You have a different life altogether. We live in a big city here. It's all big city. There's no wild horses. I love wild horses. That's why I'm I'm talking with you, and I think this is amazing stuff that you're doing. And you were just talking about the ruminants and the fact that some ranchers have misunderstood what that was actually there for, the uh, act yeah, that you mentioned.
1: Well, so, yeah we, yeah, we were talking about the Taylor Grazing Act that they passed in 1934 so, They didn't have the money because of the Depression in the 30s to really make that work and reduce livestock grazing and reduce the, the, the dust bowl that was created from livestock. So what ended up happening is a lot of livestock people actually became the administration for the Taylor Grazing Act. And according to history, this isn't my opinion, this is the actual history, they actually ended up putting even more livestock. They did the exact opposite of what the Taylor Grazing Act intended. They put even more livestock out there. And it became such a big failure that the United States government at that point just decided, okay, we're just going to merge the General Land Office. And the General Land Office was the, the in charge of giving away uh, land to uh, for homesteads and things here in the United States. In the 1800s, early 1900s, you could get 160 acres or 80 acres um, through the general land office if you were homestead. And um, so they had the general land office, and so they merged the, the grazing association, which was all about grazing invasive species livestock. They merged those two together to form the Bureau of Land Management. So the Bureau of Land Management has its foundational roots in grazing. And, um, and that happened in 1938 when they merged the grazing association with the general land office together to form the Bureau of land management. So, but the thing is, is I think the important takeaway here is that if you're going to manage the landscape and obviously people, 98% of Americans, I think are, are buying meat, meat products. Um, that's not going to end. I mean, you know, vegetarianism, um, You know, I started out as a vegetarian in 1971, and at that time it was like 2% of Americans were vegetarians. Well, you know, here we come, is like, you know, what, 50 years later, since I was at Oregon State University, 3% of Americans are vegetarians. So the needle isn't going very fast. So the demand for um, livestock production and and those materials is still very high. It's not going to go away. So what we have to do is we have to say, okay, let's manage these animals, these ruminants, in the right places, but let's not just kill off the horses so that we can have livestock production. Let's put the horses somewhere where they provide positive benefits, and it's actually very uh, financially um, beneficial for taxpayers. When you put these horses where they reduce wildfire, wildfires are costing us hundreds of billions of dollars a year, the Smoke is damaging the climate. I mean, these talk about greenhouse gases. Um, wildfire smoke is now one of the big contributors to uh, the changing of the atmospheric composition. These hydrocarbons from these fires are going up, and it's it's terrible. It's really impacting me. Mean, that's what that's according to uh, Copernicus Atmospheric Science Center in Europe. They study these things, and they put out a report last year that said that. Um, wildfires today in the world now produce more greenhouse gases than all the fossil fuel being burned for power generation.
0: Wow! So that's
1: a big statement, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So how do we? And these, and the here's the thing: it's just so easy. You put these horses out of out of the conflict areas. You don't you don't spend fifty million dollars sterilizing them like American Wild Horse Campaign wants to do, and other people. That's not the solution. That's not even a decent band aid. It makes them a lot of money because the BLM gives them grants and they got donors. They tell advocates, Oh yeah, this is the solution. We will do fertility control and this is the solution. It'll stop roundups. That's what they try to tell you. It doesn't. And when you look at, for instance, Sandwash and um, in, in Utah um, or yeah, I think that's in Utah or, or Colorado. I can't remember where. Um, Sandwash Basin, there's a whole organization out there that's been using PZP on those horses for 20 years. They've been shooting them with what they call fertility control. It's just a chemical. Um, horses become sterile. 20 years they've been doing it. And then what happened? Well, the BLM swooped in uh, a couple of years ago after 20 years of treating them with that, rounded up 440 horses, took them away. Oh. You know, it doesn't stop roundup.
0: Wow.
1: And the re- here's the reason why sterilization will never stop roundups it's it's bad for all kinds of reasons but this is something advocates need to understand sterilization will never stop roundups and the question is why right why is it why will it never stop roundups it's real simple a sterilized horse eats and drinks just as much as a sterile horse okay they eat the same amount and that's the conflict. It's a conflict for grazing and water. So if you have a horse out there and the rancher says that horse is eating grass that I want my cows and sheep to eat, that's your conflict right there. Now if I, I sterilize that horse, have I ended that conflict? No. It doesn't it doesn't change the dynamic at all. In fact, all I've done is I've made sure that house that horse will never procreate. And with longer-term vision, that's bad, too. (laughs) So not only did I not change the the dynamics of the conflict, but I also ended the lifespan of that horse and its progeny. So, you know, this whole sales pitch about sterility, birth control, fertility control, all sterilization with chemicals, it's a lot of baloney. And it's just killing horses faster. But these organizations make so much money, and they pay themselves big salaries. Okay, our organization is a nonprofit. I've been doing this 10 years. And I, I don't get any salary. Okay, nothing. Um, the reason I do it is because these horses are a valuable asset to the future of this country. And if we exterminate them, we will suffer. This country will suffer. So we have to have an, an intelligent, natural plan for sustainable evolutionary level conservation. Okay, so. And and that involves getting the horses out of, you know, get human fingers to stop meddling. And people making money shooting them with these high-powered rifles. These rifles they use to shoot PZP and Gonicon into these horses with, they're deadly. If any human gets hit in the chest or the head with one of these guns, they're dead. And then the horses, when they get hit, they get infections, they can die. Causes, according to the scientists that developed this methodology causes bleeding hematoma broken bones and death those are the things that can happen with these guns so these aren't like you know airsoft guns your kids play with they have to shoot this heavy projectile you know 50 to 75 yards and then when it hits the horse it hits so hard it can break bones if it hits the wrong spot
0: that's traumatizing cause infection yeah
1: of course it is it's against the law i mean yeah. you mentioned at the beginning we talked about the the 71 free roaming and wild horse protection act you brought that up well right in the protection act itself it says that they're that i'm quoting right now it says that free roaming wild horses and burros shall be protected from capture branding harassment or death well when you're chasing them around with guns you're harassing them mm-hmm. when you shoot them with a gun that's really egregious harassment. I mean, these people are ha, have the the audacity to tell advocates that they're doing the horses a favor. America Wild Horse Campaign thinks they're doing the horses. They're violating the law, the intent of the law anyway. And then they're assuring that there will be no future for that herd of horses because one, they're not going to have babies. And two, we know already from experience in the landscape, they'll end up getting rounded up anyway. So we use a whole bunch of taxpayer dollars to keep them living in the lifestyle they love with their homes and their nice vehicles, and their travel and hotel and meals. And the horses are, it's, the horses are paying for it in blood. So what we need to do is we need to educate people. These horses, you just move them off the battlefield. You move them off the economic battlefield Put them somewhere where hey everybody goes, Look, it's beneficial. There's reducing fire saving the forest. Saving the forest saves wildlife. Saving the forest saves climate change, smoke, this toxic smoke going up from these fires. So but nobody makes money on it. When you do this, see it's it's nobody can make see, that's why they don't want to do it. Nobody's figured out how do we make money doing that, Bill? We don't need to make money. That's what they need to understand. How about doing something that's right just because it's right? Right. How about that?
0: That would be amazing. It would be about time.
1: Well, yeah, we, we, have, to, we have to regain our humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's almost sometimes you feel ashamed to be human now. I mean, you look at what's going on around you and how people act. Yeah. And, and how they disregard wildlife and nature. And they don't understand there's a penalty for doing that, and it's coming, and it's harsh. And the fire is the beginning of it, these big fires. That's because we mismanaged our servants, our the deer, the elk. All those big herbivores are, are decimated now out here in the far west, and now we're paying the price. It's not climate change that causes fires. That's a, that's a, mis, that's a misnomer. That's not true. There's nothing true about that statement. Climate change doesn't cause wildfire, okay? What, what's causing the fire is the loss of all the herbivores. The deer are gone in California and Oregon. They're heavily depleted, and the science says when you lose your herbivore, catastrophic wildfire evolves. Why does that happen? Because if something isn't eating all that grass and brush, it just sits there, and here's where climate comes into effect. If you got all this grass and brush no longer being eaten anymore, it gets dry sooner because of climate change. It gets, stays dry longer, so you widen the window and under which that stuff can ignite. And because there's so much of it, it burns catastrophically hot. When you have all these herbivores out there like we used to have 100 years ago, and the horses, the deer, all that stuff out there, they eat it down. So when you have a fire, it just burns low and slow because there's very little fuel. That's natural wildfire. That's the fire that a forest needs, okay? But the fire that we're ge- seeing on the landscape today is abnormally hot, and it kills fire evolved trees. That should be a big red flag for everybody. Why are these trees that need fire getting killed by fire for the first time in history? That, see, people don't ask the right questions. Why are these fire-resistant trees dying now? What why is well, the fire is different. That's why it's too hot. They can't take it. They've been able to take fire for 5,000 years. They need fire. But now, because we lost our herbivores, see, nature had it all balanced, but we started shooting all the deer, our cars are hitting them, the diseases, you know, and the fire is killing even more of them. Now they're gone. Now what happens? Well, there's a penalty for that. And that penalty is catastrophic fire.
0: We have it in Canada, too. the the wildfires I
1: know I saw your fire yeah yeah yep it's uh and it's easily fixed I mean we just need a moratorium on hunting we got to fill the grazing we got to fill the grazing gap right away so you get the horses into you can't we don't have enough horses to spread around where we need them everywhere but we could protect maybe some really critical areas you know like figure out where all the big heritage trees are the rare sequoias and and other big trees that we need to protect from fire because they're so important. Wow. Um, and you can just put, put small herds of horses—you know, five hundred, a thousand horses—in these areas, and they'll stay there. You know, they don't want to wander out and have, you know, problems with humans. That they're wild horses; they they want to be wild and free. I've learned from these horses up here, living with them, they value their freedom above everything. We can. How do I know that? Well when a horse comes and visits the cabin or a family band, I could roll out the red carpet. I could put grain and alfalfa and all the best stuff. And yeah, they'll eat it while they're visiting, but then they'll leave and they won't come back for months because they enjoy their life being wild and free. They don't, a free meal isn't going to get it. They're not like an alley cat, right? Or if you feed it once, it's going to be back every day. That's not how it works with wild horses. They, they, they value their freedom. They love the wilderness. They love to go around and do what they do. So we have to respect that. And to respect it, you have to understand them. You need to learn about them. You need to learn what do they want. I mean, they're sentient beings. They're really smart. They Their brains are big. They're two-thirds the size of our brain, four times the size of a dog's brain. People think their dogs are smart. horse has four times the size brain. So... They're very intelligent, and we need to learn to respect them as a sentient, intelligent species. And, um, and if we do that, we'll benefit in, in many ways.
0: Well, we've seen it in your area because I remember even the last time that we talked and the, seeing the pictures and the horses and the green grass. And then now hearing more about it. And you're not the only one who talk about the wildfire prevention. I know Craig Downer, the wildlife ecologist, does talk about that too.
1: Yeah, Craig, I've had him up here a few times. And because, you know, he tries to see horses in the HMAs. And it's very difficult because um, they don't trust people. They run away. You know, it's hard to. It's, you need to log a lot of time. You know, that's why the Goodall method is so important, okay? People don't understand that, but, you know, Jane Goodall was not the first person to go to Gombe, Africa. In fact, when she went, she didn't even have any training in science at all. She was just Dr. Leakey's secretary. She had no college degree at all, nothing. Um, And there'd be an anthropologist and primatologist in Gombe trying to study the apes for a very long time. Hundreds of people had been there before Jane. And they didn't discover anything new. And these are professionals with PhDs. Okay? And that's because they couldn't get close enough. Yeah. To really learn about the apes. Well, what did Jane do different? Well, she made friends with them. And then once she built the bonds of trust in the relationship, then she was able to be close enough to see what they really did. And then she saw them making and using tools. So Mm -hmm. that's what we do here. That's what we do here at Wild Horse Fire Brigade. We live among them, and because we're friends and they trust us, we can study them in a way that no one else can, not even Craig Downer. <laughs> so Craig goes to the, I, know, I know Craig very well. Okay. And um, like I said, he comes up here because he can get close to the horses. Yeah. He, and he said, this is the only place he knows where he can get close.
0: Nice. Thank yeah. you so much for ch- chatting and sharing all this information. It's really incredible.
1: Well, I appreciate it. You know, I, we're doing it for the horses, and, uh, you know, you're doing a good job, Yanni, because they need, we got to be the voice for the voiceless, you know. We have to learn from them and, t- and tell the world. That's right. That's, a, that's our job.
0: That's what we're doing. And we're going to share this conversation after. So, wow, that was
1: it with Will, Bill Simpson. Thank- Find Wild Horse Fire Brigade
0: online at wildhorsefirebrigade.org. And to learn more about Radio Waterloo, you can find us online as well, CKMS 102.7 FM, here in Kitchener, Waterloo, southwestern Ontario, Canada. Thanks so much for listening to The Regime.